Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we take a film studies sort of eye towards films that don't belong in a film studies course, although this particular film could be found in a film studies course. Well, we are in February, so we're doing anti-trash once again in honor of award season. But anti-trash with a spin, we're going to do kind of a, a love month anti-trash, so romance anti-trash. Played once, Em. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Played, Sam. Play as time goes by. I'll have what she's having. Love means never having to say you're sorry. I wish I knew how to quit. Why don't you? Why don't you just let me be, huh? I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that mattress, man. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. This week, we've rounded up the usual suspects and have gathered together again to talk about the movie Casablanca. It's a Spanish retelling of life in the White House and uh, the American presidency. Very, very exciting. It's a lot like the West Wing. <laughs> I was like, thinking House of Cards. It's but... like the South Wing. And... The South Wing. Oh, my God. And so we'll be talking about that movie. We will be spoiling because this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. So if you have lived under a rock and haven't seen Casablanca, we will be spoiling the ending in which uh, President Rick Blaine is assassinated. But we will get to that here in a little while after passing the Emancipation Proclamation. Rick. 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 Rick, you must help me. Rick, somebody help me. That's that. Moving on. Uh, we got to introduce the disembodied voices that are doing poor Peter Laurie impersonations, though, before we get any further. To the extreme left, ma'am, if you would. My name's Alexandra Bohannon, and of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine. True facts. To the right, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, we'll always have the podcast. We'll always have the podcast. To my immediate left, if you would, sir. I am Arthur Gordon, and I came to Casablanca for the waters. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, Mr. Gordon. My name is Dustin Sells, and kiss me, Dalton. Kiss me as if it was for the last time. It probably will be. It turns out it was. Except for it wasn't, because did you notice the uh, 
the sort of coded Hollywood sex that they do. Oh, there's a lot of it, yeah. Oh, yeah. With, with, with Rick and Ilsa specifically. Yes. In that they, 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 they kiss, and then suddenly we see uh, searchlights tracking on a building outside because indicating a large passage of time. And I think Rick's jacket's off when we see him next. Yes. Yeah, they had sex. And, yeah, it's pretty funny. But there's me. also the uh, coded prostitution that takes place around the midpoint of the film. Yeah, yes. with the, these like, oh, the, show her in, adjust tie. No, the, uh, the Bulgarian couple. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of the... Um, Police inspector, that, French yeah. guy. He's getting a lot of strange. Yeah, Renault. The question is, will Renault keep his promise? And yes, he will if you do the deed. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of coded sex in here, and uh, that's that's probably something that'll come up in a little bit later. But let's begin and remind you, dear listener, as we are going to avoid spoilers um, for the first few moments of our podcast. That means we'll have a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, and then we'll move into our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then we will spoil like Mad Men. And uh, so that's coming up very very quickly. So <laughs> Dick Whitman is Don Draper. That's correct. <laughs> Peter Lorre as Don Draper. Oh fuck. <laughs> Tell me what you want. <laughs> what do you want to hear? It's not a wheel, it's a carousel. <laughs> so that's going to happen very, very shortly. Voice the cinema, Arthur Gordon. <laughs> Sorry, that's so, I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> Please bring us that synopsis and stop the madness. Set in unoccupied Africa during the early days of World War II, an American expatriate meets a former lover. With unforeseen complications. That's right. The MacGuffin turns out to be those transit papers. But we'll move into that more in a moment. Let's just talk about our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Now, I know several of our dear co-hosts are first-time viewers of the film. That's um, Alex and Dalton, correct? Yeah, correct. that's right. And so I'm excited to hear that. We'll begin with you, Alex. Uh, what do you say about this movie? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Does it work? And why? Well, Dalton and I had the privilege of watching this together on Dustin's Ultimate Edition Super Blu-ray. And I have to say that this is maybe one of the, my favorite movies I've seen so far this year. This is... I, I go into it, and I don't really know what to expect. The only thing I know about this movie is... And I don't think this is spoilers because it wasn't spoilers for me, not knowing this. But I just remember the ending plane sequence, and she's wearing that hat. And then they're like staring into each other's eyes. That's the only thing I knew about this movie before I had watched it. And it's so much more than that. And that's what one thing that... I, compels me to watch it again as soon as possible it is definitely a movie i'd give a hearty thumbs up to uh the pacing is really interesting the plot line keeps me invested in what's going on um i don't know i don't know about like character believability because i do i mean i do believe the characters i don't really have any you know, quandaries or qualms, but I ha say that with hesitation because that's kind of a different era and it's kind of hard to put my 21st century, you know, 2000, you know, 15 perspective on things occurring during World War II. But from what I understand, this seems pretty accurate. And the ending I felt did a really great job of not disappointing me, but not giving me like the, you know, the ultimate thing that everyone desires. You know what I mean? Try not to spoil her. I do know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I was very satisfied by the ending and it wasn't, I don't feel like it was most, a most traditional Hollywood ending. And overall, I would give this movie to anyone to watch. I think it's great entertainment. And the fact that you could easily watch this with your family and have the same experience as if you were watching with all of your buddies is that's kind of hard to come by you know, having the same level of adult 
entertainment alongside people of all ages. It's pretty, pretty important. Uh, I will give this movie five out of a possible five um, songs that acts as large motifs. Excellent. Thank you. And there is a song that acts as quite a motif. Uh, in the film. Thank you very much. Let's move to a more jaded, uh, frequent viewer. You know, Arthur is a film studies major like myself. And so how many times have you seen Casablanca, Arthur? I have seen it roughly probably, this may have been four, the fourth time I've seen it. So um, what are your thoughts on it? Thumbs up, thumbs down, does it work? And uh, why or why not? It's It was definitely two thumbs up, and I was really hesitant to watch it, and I always am. And I think it's just the stigma of it being an old movie. that It's hard for me to get past sometimes. But uh, I, I definitely two thumbs up this time. Um, it just, it gets better. I think every time I see it, I catch new things. I pick up on new things. A lot of the double entendre, the codified stuff that you've already mentioned, uh, that I just may not miss or just kind of glance over the first time. And so I catch new things. I notice new things. Bogart's just phenomenal yes. uh, as an actor. Uh, it's in the nuance of that performance. At, at one point, one of the things that caught my eye was, um, as he and Louis uh, are watching the, one of the planes take off early on in the film. And and Rick looks at the plane as it's leaving. There's just this sorrow and this this pain and this uh, kind of regret in his eyes. And Louis questions him about it, but it's just that look that he gives, and you don't see that often from actors anymore. Uh, these very nuanced details uh, in the performance, very subtle fa- facial performance. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the little things that count. At, at several points, he does a lot of eye twitch thing when he sees Ilsa, and yeah. it's really amazing. Yeah, and so it's uh, it's it's wonderful in that aspect. The rest of the cast is great. Claude Rains, uh, Ingrid Bergman. It's just it's wonderful. Uh, to see um, the scoring, the music. Uh, much like 12 Angry Men, I think it overcomes its set limitations and its production limitations. As 80% of the film takes place at Rick's. About another 10% takes place at a uh, Rick's that has been redone to look like other sets. Man, I didn't I even notice. <laughs> and uh, it's it's really, it, it just moves along. You don't really notice it. And so I think it just succeeds in every way. It's a classic for a reason. I'd give it seven and a half weasel, weaselish Peter Lorries out of seven. Seven and a half out of seven. I like I like that rating very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well, Dalton, the other virgin, uh, if you would, sir, tell me what you think. Thumbs up, thumbs down, why it works and why it doesn't, perhaps. Well, I think Casablanca is really important because it tells us something that I don't – a message that we don't get very often, which is that Nazis are evil. <laughs> Man, we definitely don't get that ever. Fuck? I had not gotten that memo. It's good to know. Um, all kidding aside, though, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I mean, it is just – aces oh my god it's so good uh it is a little sleepy at times it's it very much is is very melodic in a lot of ways and it kind of lulls you i was very tired uh i watched this in two chunks with alex and both times i was very sleepy um and very nearly fell asleep actually did fall asleep at one point but that isn't uh, an indictment on the movie that it's actually kind of speaks to this really kind of slow build in rick to, to, to action, uh, which I think is really cool. The, the, the pacing of the film does kind of underline the larger character and plot points of it, if that makes sense. In that, you know, the, the slow movement of the plot is kind of to score, under underscore rather, the, the slow movement in Rick of, you know, what he's going to do. Because that's what this whole movie's about, is Rick and him trying to figure out how exactly he's going to approach the situation that he's been thrust in because he's been spending you know, the last year or two of his life going out of his way to not get involved in anything. Uh, and now he's being forced to get involved in you know, the most involved thing. He's, you know, that's a lot of uses of the word involved, excuse me. <clears throat> and now he's being forced to get involved uh, 
in the most personal thing he had ever been involved in. You know, he's he's tried to remain detached, remain impersonal. Uh, and this very personal moment in his life has come back to him, and he's being forced to act in a way he hasn't since he's been in Casablanca. And I, I find that really kind of awesome, just that whole trajectory for him throughout the film. Uh, and everyone's already – I mean, the, the cinematography, the black-and-white cinematography in this film is just gorgeous. Um you know, all the shot composition, Rick's performance, I say Rick, uh, Humphrey Bogart's performance, as Arthur already mentioned, is just wonderful. And Bergman's, I mean, no schlub either, obviously. Yeah. I mean, she's great. I And I really, Claude Rains is really great, too, uh, in this kind of comedic relief, uh, almost anti-hero type role. Because he's definitely not a good guy, yeah. but he's not a bad guy either, by any yeah. means. But, um, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I'm so glad that I had, finally had the chance to watch it. And it dawns on me, this might be the oldest film we've ever watched for the podcast. This or do cinema. I think Correct. that might be accurate, yeah. Correct. 43, so, I yeah. Think previously, I think previously it was 12 Angry Men. Which was, like, 50-something. 50 50-something. 50 and then um, Rashomon, which was also 50s, right? Correct. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. this is the uh, oldest film we've ever watched for the podcast, and it just feels... As relevant now as it, I'm sure it did then. I'm going to give Casablanca nine and a half uh, transit papers out of a possible ten. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dollinster. Now I want to speak to something about the viewing experience of the film because Alex and Dalton took my Blu-ray, so I watch it on my VHS copy. Yes, I still have a VHS copy of Casablanca and a functioning VCR on which to play it. And it is still good. It's still completely so much fun to watch. It's totally worth your time. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the secondary performances, Claude Rains as Renault, also uh, Ugarte, you know, Peter Laurie playing uh, that, uh, you know, Ferrari played by Sidney Greenstreet. You know, this is like a, like a who's who uh, of uh, great character actors uh, from the uh, 40s and 50s. Love me some Conrad Veidt as, uh, or Veidt, depending on how you want to go to go about saying that as uh, the evil uh, German uh, general, I believe General Strasser, right? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know. Colonel General. Colonel General. You know, general Colonel. Sieg Heil, moving on. Uh, and uh, he's doing a great job in that. And so there's just all of these really, really great players um, that are working in the film. Uh, as you mentioned, the cinematography is great. I think the set design is fantastic. Uh, I think the use of cigarette smoke is kind of brilliant also. Mm. Yeah, I was give... thinking about that too as well. Yeah, yeah. don't don't try to uh, it's just, don't try to smoke every time somebody's smoking on screen in this. You'll get sick. Yeah, you would. I mean, I can't imagine. And uh, I don't. <laughs> Dalton tried. <laughs> it's it's oh. no surprise that Humphrey Bogart died of uh, throat cancer. Yeah, that's that's a thing. And, uh, you know, as a result, it gives it great texture and depth, you know, and that definitely um, adds the realism of uh, the feeling of the film. And so, it, 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 you know, there's a reason why it's considered the greatest American film. And when it comes to, you know, that place in the 40s and they start talking about these films that you must see, you know, Citizen Kane comes up a lot. And I would watch this movie all the time over Kane. I've had to see Kane so many times because of film studies reasons and whatnot. And I've seen Casablanca a, a great many times as well. And I would much rather watch Casablanca. It's just a much more entertaining and fun film. And uh, so I would give it uh, 10 dead flies killed by Sidney Greenstreet out of a possible 10. Kills him a lot of flies. He, he, there's some dead flies um, going on in that film. So thank you very much, dear co-hosts, for those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. We're going to move now into that spoilerific spoiler territory as we bring analysis to the film. Uh, I begin with you, Arthur Gordon, because I believe you're going to bring us some context. So Arthur, if you would go ahead and, and kick us off. I want to tell you the story of a film that was made 
over budget by about $75,000 at the time. That would have been a quite a chunk of change for the studios uh, to fork out. Uh, had a string of A-list stars, saw weeks of rewrites and a revolving door of potential directors, all the while being rushed into a nationwide January uh, release to moderate success, becoming the seventh highest grossing film of the year. A year later, Casablanca would go on to win three of eight Oscars. That was one of uh, hundreds of films that came out with no real performance expectations because in the day the studios churned out films because that's what studios do as a factory that they were. Um, in fact, it would have been considered successful just by making back its budget, especially for going over. Since its inception in 1929, uh, the Academy has recognized what is deemed the best of motion pictures every year, the Academy Awards, that is. Uh, for nearly the first half of its run, the Academy recognized mostly major studio releases. We look at things like Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Wings, and so forth, uh, mainly coming out of major studios, MGM, Warner Brothers, Fox, <clears throat> A few independents. We'd have United Artists occasionally uh, making a run for it. But other than that, it was mostly the uh, major players, which makes sense seeing as studios would churn out hundreds of movies with only a few aimed at higher accolades. Uh, Casablanca was not such a release. Casablanca was one of those quota films put together to make a buck. Uh, however, it has gone down in history as one of the greatest American films of all time. If Casablanca were to come out today, though, it wouldn't make a dent at the Oscars. Uh, roughly by the 60s and 70s, independent films began to take over. Uh, this would come more than a decade following the Paramount case of 46, 47, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, which saw the monopoly of the studios uh, broken up and distributed um, and allowed for uh, the Oscar stranglehold to be loosened by the studios. Up until that point, uh, most of the major theaters run in America were all operated and owned by the major studios. Mm -hmm. And so this court case allowed for that to be broken up so other studios would have a shot. Hence the uh, Paramount in downtown Oklahoma City uh, on a historic film row, which uh, is now a hip little uh, coffee shop that also shows films and does live performances in their back room, but at one time was a Paramount-owned uh, theater in Oklahoma City. And just as another note, the official breakup of those um, studios from their exhibition um, arms in, uh, th in cinemas and theaters didn't actually happen until the mid-60s. Uh, in the years following, a few British and independent studios began peeking in. We'd see a couple uh, out of Britain, especially uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier's production company, which would get his Shakespeare uh, films nominated uh, later in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, then this paradigm shifts, and partially due to what Dustin mentioned as the uh, effects of the case happening in the 60s, and more and more independent films began to sneak in and take home Best Picture wins and nominations, and we began to see the shift from box office and critical successes to independent and artistic wins, and it became less about the entertainment and more about the art. Uh, Casablanca and also Gone with the Wind both reflect this idea of successful commercial hits being the best picture of the year. It's an idea that has gone to the wayside in the latter half of the century. Uh, today, a movie like Casablanca Gone with the Wind wouldn't win Best Picture. In fact, Avatar and The Dark Knight and the Marvel films are just strong examples of this. They're the closest thing to the studio films of the past era that we have uh, in this day and age. Uh, they have strong critical and box office success, but they are completely ignored come award season. Instead, the successors of Citizen Kane... Uh, now take home the gold on Oscar night. Citizen Gain in today's world would be a Best Picture winner. Uh, it would dominate, and it would be lauded critically, uh, and very much uh, as it is now, it would be in an uproar if it didn't win a Best Picture. Um, and we've gotten so far away from films like Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark being nominated, uh, which both were in the 70s. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Jurassic Park would have been nominated uh, at the time. Those types of films would have 
uh, made a dent, and they would have had supporters and voters on their side. And even the Golden Globes, who at one point recognized the hipper films, has started to fall suit with the AMPAS in the last few years. And so the question becomes, what makes a movie great? The artistic merit or the way it can connect with an audience? And who truly has the right to de- designate uh, these films as the best picture of the year? Yeah, excellent. I, I I love what you're saying there, Arthur. And, you know, even though it was in sort of A-list um, as far as stars go, you're absolutely right. It was absolutely just commercial fare. They were trying to make a buck there at Warner Brothers. And, uh, you know, I do find that fascinating. I also found it fascinating. I guess you guys might have noticed it's an MGM uh, release on the videos, and it's a Warner Brothers film. And MGM has since gone bankrupt and come back. So there's some very, very interesting sort of cinema history, I think, at work there as well. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you in terms of analysis? Um, I just wanted to bring up something that Dalton slightly touched on during his review section and how I do find it interesting we're watching this film. Um, part of, yes, it's anti-trash, but we tried to take a kind of romantic view of anti-trash. But this, I don't feel like this movie is a romance movie. Uh, not really at all for me. Um, it does have romance elements, and obviously it has um, romance as one of the kind of plot um, devices and incites some action on the part of our protagonist. But it is mostly, it's, it's about him. It doesn't, this film doesn't follow normal romance-type tropes that you would see in most commercial releases, certainly, after having that great film history. Though it does create some romance tropes for later. Indeed. Mm-hmm. It does have the in a, like the coded sex thing, which was really fascinating to, to talk about. But yeah, even by today's you know, film relationship standards, Alex is right. I mean, it, it's still, the, the relationship between Rick and Elsa is fairly unconventional by you know, major film standards. Right. I mean, the fact that you know he doesn't get the dame at the end of the movie and he does the one of the most noble things um by letting her go despite her protests i this is mostly a film speaking on how a man loses himself and then finds himself again because you learn earlier in the movie how he used to be this advocate he what did he run guns to was it bosnia or ethiopia ethiopia um and he did all this kind of advocacy work but whenever the war came he kind of and then of course also come come. advocacy is a very nice word for mercenary but (laughs) <laughs> yeah um you don't you don't but, think but, about okay well but the thing is is like um our, our police chief he brings up Renault. yeah yeah he's like well the winning side could have paid you more yeah. you know he could have pay- gone with the winning side yeah, but, on but the issue i think I, we don't get a lot of background info on rick but i think what we what we do have to know is that he was a mercenary and in the the lead up uh, you know the early to late 30s leading up to <clears throat> the situation that allowed World War II to happen. Yeah, we, you know, the world was in a great deal of upheaval. And I think what we learned about Rick is, yeah, that he was very much picking sides despite, you know, the, the monetary loss that that was going to cause him. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, probably advocacy is being kind of, you know, 21st century dental with what <laughs> actually was transpiring in Rick's situation. But you're right. No, he he is, you know, making a, a moral choice. Absolutely. Right. And um, he then stops making those choices and tries to play this this neutral this neutral point of view in a situation that is obviously wanting everyone to pick a side and whenever i would also compare this to 
Elsa and her choice having to to leave Rick um, in in Paris because she realized that she also needed to pick a side and that overall in both of their storylines both Rick and Elsa's there is no neutrality in love or war there just isn't there has to be a choice and you can't just send sit idly by the by the sidelines you're gonna unless you're Switzerland you're gonna get roped into this thing the great irony of that being that when Casablanca was being made the U.S. was still effectively neutral right but it didn't remain so for very much longer. No. I mean, if anything, Rick shows that even the most, the I mean, Rick was there for a couple of years. He tried remaining so neutral, but it's it just goes to show that despite your best efforts, you're still probably going to get roped in and that choosing neutrality isn't going to work over time you know there's still gonna Mm -hmm. be a side demanded of you and i guess you could be like someone made this comparison once and it always stuck with me about how if you were living in modern day germany and those atrocities were happening you know of course everyone wants to say they were they would be like the people be right making this big stink in the crowd but how many people would actually be you know, fight on behalf of people shipped away to concentration camps because most likely you'd probably be just like a German citizen, like the average ones where you're not openly condoning, you know, the, the things that are happening, the atrocities, cause they're not telling you all of them certainly, but because you're a baker and you've got bread to make. Right. But because of your inaction, you're effectively condoning them. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's kind of what is happening here. You know, you can't just stay silent. There's going to be a choice. And maybe Rick by... Um, Rick was going to... It looked like to me he was going to help... Not help, but um, cooperate with the authorities until, you know, all of this... The proverbial shit hit the fan. Uh-huh. And... Anyway, just in conclusion, neutrality isn't an option just really for anything. The the choice will be demanded from you, and your inaction will make you side one way or the other. There really isn't a neutral course. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. I think that is at the heart of the film, um, this question of neutrality and having to act um, in, in what's going on on the world stage. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis bring you? Well, when I first started thinking about Casablanca, I was really thinking about maybe talking about the the idea of the noble sacrifice in film. Uh, And then Dustin said something to me that uh, made me go back to the old well that is my friend masculinity. Um, What we see here in Casablanca in Humphrey Bogart's portrayal of Rick is really kind of the start of a new masculinity um, that is still not common in film today, uh, which is this very sensitive... Uh, this very kind of forlorn and caring and really um, this masculinity that wears its heart and its emotion on its sleeve. It is not stoic. It is not John Wayne. It is not John Ford masculinity. It it is a different kind uh, in which the hero's greatest power, his most, uh, you know, his most tough badassery is derived from his emotions. I think of a scene uh, towards the beginning of the film uh, where, 
Humphrey Bogart is sitting with Sam, kind of just drinking his sorrows away. And Sam's like, well, I'm going to stay with you. And he says, all right, we'll play the damn song then. Um, and he's like, all right, we'll play the song. And we get this kind of lengthy flashback sequence, which is honestly one of my least favorite parts of the film. I think the film would be better off without that flashback sequence. But what we get after that flashback sequence is this look on Rick's face that is just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then when Elsa comes to the bar like he knew she would um, and she leaves – we get a shot of him crying. In 1941, we see a man openly... 1942, I'm sorry. We see a man openly crying on screen. Not hiding it. He's not like, oh, stiff up a lip. He cries. Humphrey Bogart cries because the woman he loves doesn't love him anymore, or at least doesn't love him the way he wishes she could. And I think that's really powerful. And that, to me, really is a very progressive depiction of masculinity, um, particularly in a year where we have something like um, American Sniper uh, being this huge critical hit all about a man who's like, no, I'm just doing a job. Oh, no, it doesn't bother me. I'm a tough guy. And and we've got, you know, not to, you know, belittle that film or Chris Kyle. I'm not trying to make a statement about that. What I am trying to say is we still have a culture that, says men should be stoic, should not feel when things hurt them. And what we see in 1942 is Humphrey Bogart weeping because he's lost some love. Uh, and what does he end up doing? He he does make that sacrifice, which is always, you know, from the beginning of film, the beginning of human storytelling, is considered this great masculine and noble thing is to give up what you want for the greater good. The greater good. And I think that's really cool because what we get instead of that noble sacrifice – on its own is we get a noble sacrifice born out of love and born out of sensitivity and born out of real human emotion. It's not like Gran Torino uh, where John, uh, where I said John Wayne, where Clint Eastwood sacrifices his life um, in this tough, heroic, you know, tough guy way. Um, It's a more emotional sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of happiness, a sacrifice of love. You know, uh, he loves her, so he lets her go. Um, which is, you know, a, a classic film trope, but it's the way it's played in Casablanca that I think makes it so relevant, makes it so important, is that he's not playing the tough guy. You know, yes, he pulls a gun. Yes, he shoots the bad guy. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to that scene of him crying, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, you know, what what does he do? Um, the thing that helps him get involved, the thing that motivates him, it's not Elsa coming back. It's seeing this young girl willing to essentially prostitute herself out for the safety of herself and her husband that kind of spurs him into picking a side. And he realizes like, I can't, you know, this other love reminds him of his own love. And he's like, I can't sit by anymore. And it is that, as Alex said, he's forced to pick a side because he realizes inaction is picking a side. If he had remained inactive, this little girl's going to sleep with Renault. And at the end of the day, not the most evil thing that's happening in Casablanca by any means, but certainly not, not a good thing. Um, and so it is that one small human dignity that motivates Rick, that, that emotion. And I think that's really beautiful, and I think that's something we can still benefit from today is that different type of masculinity. Thank you very much uh, for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What I want to say with regard to the film is I want to do a little bit of contextualization as well um, uh, in the ways that um, Arthur Gordon has. This is happening um, in, the, in 1938. Uh, a guy called Joseph McCarthy as uh, a senator from Wisconsin. Uh, began his uh, House subcommittee. On, I have here in these papers uh, uh, this uh, 
House Committee on Un-American Activities, the Red Scare, the communist witch hunts that went on, and the screenwriters on the film were all blacklisted or at least accused at various and sundry points. Uh, the Epstein brothers um, both worked on the film, and they were uh, both uh, being accused of being communist infiltrators. And famously, they were asked at the committee hearings, you know, do you work for a subversive organization? And they both said, yes, Warner Brothers. Which is a hilarious slam statement. dunk. Yeah, it's so good. But I want to think about the the film in terms of um, Joseph McCarthy was right to an extent that there was this sort of subversive uh, communist uh, depiction going on in Hollywood and specifically in this film. Now we got to talk about the least interesting character in the whole movie for a second, and that's Victor Laszlo. Um, Paul Henry um, does a fine job. He gets third billing on the film, and I don't think he's not the third most memorable person. Not by a long shot, In, no. in the film. I mean, he's one-dimensional. He's sort of a hero and just doing that thing that heroes do. Um, he does stand up and take a great moment when they sing the French National Anthem in response to the German National Anthem, which is a great moment. Good in, scene. In the film. And, you know, you, you, you see... Uh, um, Yvonne uh, weepfully um, singing the national anthem sort of uh, after she's realized that she's gone to the enemy, uh, literally sleeping with the enemy. That was a really beautiful moment, yeah. And uh, But the film itself is sort of suggesting a, um, you know, communitarian, I won't go as far as say communist, uh, sort of worldview that it, it's actually excoriating some of the uh, Western uh, North American individualism that it's not about that's a that's a misreading of uh, Casablanca to treat it as this film that's all about you being the tough guy and doing the thing you, you want to do and that you know that sort of understanding of Bogart that's popular but not I don't think entirely accurate. No, that's, yeah, I mean, you know, just thing about what I was saying, it's the exact opposite of that. Actually, it's yeah. doing what you don't want to do for the good of others. And Laszlo is this Czech agitator, this Czech um, subversive factor uh, who's working all across Europe in a sort of an anti-fascist way. And those who work against anti-fascism in Europe at that time were all communists. That Victor Laszlo is a coded communist, uh, I think, clearly in the film. And uh, that uh, Bogart's actions in Ethiopia and in Spain, working uh, uh, against the Italian fascists in Ethiopia and then working on the loyalist side in Spain, are both... Uh, He's siding himself with communists, with Marxists uh, throughout the film, and that he's sort of trying to get away from that. He's trying to, uh, you know, again, just take care of number one. He sticks his neck out for no one. But later on, in terms of the blacklist, he talks about – I think it's in the flashback scene where the the Germans know his history. They know what he's done. They know he's a threat to fascism as communism has been throughout Europe, and uh, he says something about they know who he is, and they've got a list of folks, and he calls it their list of honor. And I cannot but think that the blacklist is being commented on as a list of honor. Now, later, uh, Bogart is very, very vocal um, before the committee, and he talks about how this is not the way you treat Americans. And he is very um, uh, very much in the defense of these uh, blacklisted writers and directors uh, later. He de definitely goes a long way to identify himself as not a communist himself. But I think of a, a line I read by an American film director from Lithuania escaping the same sort of uh, – issues Jonas Mikas and he says just because you're anti-capitalist doesn't mean you're communist and uh, I find that to be an interesting statement and it seems to be um, that that left-wing progressive uh, viewpoint of uh, Mr. Bogart 
And the film itself uh, works its way towards saying we've got to work together. We've got to put individual concerns to the background, and we've got to take care of the communal, in this case, the world community needs uh, together as a film, to Alex's point. And uh, that, that the shift is happening as much in Rick as it is in Captain Renault. That Renault is, um, you know, he he goes where the wind blows, and currently the wind is blowing from Vichy. That code uh, means that there is a government uh, that's a German um, sort of puppet government in France as France is occupied. I was thinking about that. I was when I was watching, I was like, I wonder how many people watching this film know what they're talking about when they're talking about Vichy France. Yeah, and the pouring out of the Vichy water, which Which is is so cool, a brand of wine uh, at the time. So that uh, yeah, all that sort of thing is working on uh, a lot of levels, and that Rick has to set aside romance uh, again back to alex's point that he sets back his own romantic uh, desires the, uh, the the hollywood standard b plot of the uh, of the constitution of the uh, heterosexual romantic couple that he sets that aside in um defense of a cause that he sets aside his individualism for the sake again of communal needs i mean this is this is a very anti individualistic anti western uh statement anti capitalist uh for that matter statement i think uh, at work in the film. And so, yes, McCarthy had a right to be afraid that Warner Brothers was indeed a subversive organization and that what's going on in this film is something quite subversive to some of those standardized values that you see trumped up so often in Hollywood film. And uh, there are reasons why McCarthy was suspicious. Now, as it turns out, it's not actually a threat to democracy and it's not a threat to the American way because it is also firmly anti-totalitarian in the in the depiction of Strasser versus is Rick, and uh, that he eventually does move, though, and sticks his neck out for someone, and that the film ends with that beautiful statement as him and Renault are walking off in the fog, and he says this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, that, again, communal cooperation is the value that's being held up over individual desire and individual want, that somebody says, you know what, I will have less of what I want, because there are others who need more, from each according to his ability, to each according to their need. It seems to be precise that uh, at work at the film and so yeah McCarthy you ought to be scared and uh, I would dare say this we ought to have more scary films being made of this nature oh well thank you so much dear co-host for that spot on bit of analysis dear listener we want to hear your analysis as well we'll give you opportunity for that but before that we must make a verdict we must say shelf or trash I think some of those inclinations have been revealed at this point and then uh, perhaps more interestingly are else's or instead's what say you Arthur Gordon shelf or trash Elsewhere instead. Shelf. It's on my shelf. Uh, pick it up. It's worth buying. It's worth owning. It's worth seeing multiple times. It's a classic that gets better with age. Uh, I enjoy it more every time I watch it. I say else. You watch this with, as I mentioned earlier, 12 Angry Men. Uh, I think would go with this well. Um, I say also check out Sunset Boulevard and Rear Window. And if you're looking for movies with dive bars full of odd corruption and weird things going up in the night, I say check out Total Recall nice. and uh, Star Wars and New Hope. Excellent. I like those picks very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Shelf or trash, else or instead? Oh, shelf, definitely. Yeah, real good. Real good. Watch it now, listener. Uh, I'm sure we have plenty of listeners who have been meaning to watch Casablanca for a very long time uh, and never got around to it, much like myself. Uh, And I would say do that now because I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think it's very valuable. I have but one else, but it is the most important else that you could possibly watch with Casablanca. And that is the 2001 comedy, Out Cold, which is 
What is that? Oh, I've never heard of oh, this film. I know you haven't because it's not very good, but it's amazing. It is, what if Casablanca had a baby with all those 1980s uh, ski school movies? And it stars Jason London, Lee Majors, Zach Galifianakis, David Koechner of Anchorman fame, and uh, Carolyn uh, DeVernay uh, from Hannibal. Yeah, and it is a one-to-one correspondence with Casablanca. I mean, it is. it has the same plot, uh, except instead of Nazis, their uh, quiet Alaskan snowboarding community is going to be taken over by rich capitalists, one of which is the immaculate, the ever-wonderful uh, Tom Lennon uh, from Reno 911 is one of the cronies of uh, Lee Majors who wants to take over their community and turn it into a... Uh, not Denver. What's the uh, ski town in Colorado? Aspen. Aspen. There we go. They want to turn into Aspen. Um, oh, my God. It's so bad and so funny. Um, they used to run it on Comedy Central all the time. It was one of those movies that they just used to fill time because it was cheap to get the rights to it. It's not good, but it's a lot of fun. And that was most of my reference for Casablanca was seeing that movie. I mean, there's a play it again, Sam moment, uh, but with a jukebox instead of uh, a piano player. There's a here's looking at you, kid. There's a maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. Um, they, there's a we'll always have Cancun, I believe, is yeah. is what it is instead of Fran- uh, Paris. Um, Late ones. For old time's sake. The what ones? Well, the song. Listener, seek out Out Cold. Watch it now. Tell me what you think. If only because it's got a young pre-hangover Zach Galifianakis. I think it might even be a pre-live at the, uh, the Purple Onion or whatever the name of that uh, damn... A comedy special he had in, like, 07 um, that's on Netflix. It's really good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people who you're going to recognize before they've been in much of anything. Yeah. It's it's a heck of a lot of fun. Well, that's the thing that happened. There you go, dear listener. Uh, check that out. Uh, Miss Alexander Bohannon, let's say you shelf or trash, else or instead. Oh, yeah. Shelf town. This is, like, shelf worthy it's upper echelon shelf worthy definitely i would love to pick up a copy of this film i don't have a blu-ray player i need to get on that if i were to own this um really well restored the quality of the film i'm sorry i'm gonna say that again i need to own a blu-ray player so i could own a top-notch version of casablanca that we watched thanks to dustin I would say I only have one other recommendation for an else um, that would go with Casablanca. And I thought of this while I was watching it because I forgot that Casablanca was not made in, you know, the recent era because of how good the restoration was. Um, I was thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark the entire time. And just because of the similarity mm-hmm. uh, of, I mean, Nazis for one, I mean, Nazis always make you think of certain films. Um, and uh, just like, obviously the costuming choices, like all of the choices are, are of the era and it's got that adventure bend to it. And I also think that Raiders isn't necessarily a romance movie, despite having a heteronormative romance sub B plot. Um, but it's, I'd say the romance is way more integral in Casablanca um, instead of just being kind of like a, well, this happened kind of thing for Raiders. But I would definitely say Raiders would be a good one. And also note, listener, a lot of the movies we we recommended to you for our else's 
are also shows on the Good Trash Genre Cast. You can find us at goodtrashgenrecast.podbean.com, and I'm sure we will put episode links to all of our recommendations. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. And, and uh, what I want to say is it's absolutely shelfable. I've owned it on VHS. I still own it on VHS. There's a great uh, introductory uh, bit of uh, material on the front end of the, of the VHS tape, which is somewhat annoying because it takes like an hour before you can actually start watching the movie. Oh, wow. But um, Lauren Bacall, um, Humphrey Bogart's wife, uh, does a narration on all of that, and uh, it's really, really, really quite good. you have good. to fast forward through that to get to the movie proper you do yeah it, 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 if you would do such a thing but it's totally worth your time and there's all kinds of good history what if background. you've never seen it uh it, it i mean it's it they don't spoil it and it's all those pop culture references and whatnot and how yeah. it just becomes part of uh the uh the lexicon uh, of how we speak um also the blu-ray that i own is totally worth your time there are two com- commentaries on it um by historian rudy belmer and also one roger ebert you may have heard of him and uh, his commentary is quite brilliant uh, talking about the film. And so, yeah, it's worth your time. It's definitely worth owning in a place of honor and reverence and perhaps occasional worship. And so I, I think a lot of the film – and I, the reason why I think so much of it is because, again, the crux of the film is that the the the, the – the problems of two people don't matter to a hill of beans in this world, and that put that sort of thing aside, I think that sort of value just makes it worth it. And so definitely, definitely shelf. I'm going to make two recommendations. One's animated, and one is live action. The animated one I want to recommend is Carrot Blanca, starring one Bugs Bunny. You may have heard of him uh, playing Rick. Uh, there is a Daffy Duck playing Sam, and Tweety Bird plays Ugarty in a Peter Lorre impersonation. It is so fabulous. <laughs> What's up, Doc? Please help me, Mr. Bugs. I need you to hide this very important document. That wouldn't happen to be the document stolen from that poor Joyman sucker, now would it? I'm sure I wouldn't know. (laughs) The other recommend I'm going to give is a Woody Allen movie called Play It Again, Sam, in which uh, the ghost of Humphrey Bogart keeps appearing to Woody Allen to help him in his um, dealings with love and loss in the world. And it's not it's, – it's lesser Allen, but it is um, – it's a fun movie and well worth your time. Dear listener, I believe your syllabus just got a bit longer. Thank you so much, dear co-host, for that. And, of course, we want to hear your else's instead. We want to hear your analysis. We want to hear your critiques of our analysis. And you can do that via that magical means of social media. I'm going to go to Alex first. Uh, Do you know anything about a means of media by which a conversation could be held? I do. You can find us at Facebook on facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast. Any feedback coming in from the facey f- Facebook, the book face? The book face, uh, there are a couple of things. Um, Arthur <laughs> made a slight hiccup and uploaded the wrong file for blue is the warmest color. And to that, uh, Randall said, LOL, you guys are adorbs. Um, and then another bit of feedback on our favorite foreign films. Randall says, eat, drink, man, woman. I've never seen that. I'm not really familiar with it either. It's on the list. I haven't seen it yet myself, though. And I'm going to pass it over to a certain Arthur Gordon to finish up the feedback. Okay, so you're going to finish up some feedback and talk about another social media means, right, Mr. Gordon? Yes. Well, why don't you go ahead and do that? All right. Well, I'm going to kick it over to Google+, Plus, our new uh, social media outlet that we've been uh, playing around with and mining, which has been very kind to us. Um, you can find us on Google Plus, uh, Good Trash Genrecast OKC, or just search for the Good Trash Genrecast on Google or however that works. I'm not quite sure. However, I put out the question after last week's episode on whether or not Star Wars 
should have beaten Annie Hall for the Best Picture Oscar. Yes. Well, I'm sure there's controversy there. The answer is yes. And so we go to first, just to piggyback off Alex, on Facebook, uh, Brigham said that he feels Annie Hall still warrants its award. Uh, putting his admiration for Star Wars aside, he thinks Star Wars tells a more interesting story or entertaining story, but Annie Hall tells a better crafted and coherent story. It's hard for me to speak on it with any true authority because I'm not old enough to have witnessed Star Wars from inception to the present, but my understanding that the love people have for Star Wars comes not necessarily from the movies themselves, but from the experiences people had when they experienced it the first time. Generally speaking, this would be at a young age. There's a lot more stock and nostalgia they have for it uh, more than the actual film itself. But hey, that's just my opinion. And that's Brigham Cole has this thing where he sends us all Snapchats of his original cut of Star Wars. So this is a guy that is no stranger to his Star Wars geeking out. So that that's pretty cool. Oh yeah, Brigham. old boy's a, a bit of an expert on the uh, the fan restoration of uh, the original cut of A New Hope. Uh, going to Google Plus, David Skolnick. Uh, says, I don't think it's even a matter for debate. Annie Hall was clearly the best film that year. <sighs> Josh Mihal, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Mihal, Mihal, uh, says Star Wars for the win. Marcos, mm, I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name, Marcos, uh, says Star Wars, who remembers Annie Hall? And Greg Hollingsworth says, agreed, Star Wars. Well, the vote of the dear listeners at this point seems to be Star Wars is a superior film. You have retained my faith in you dear listeners and here's the thing there's nothing wrong with annie hall and they've both been uh seminal in popular culture uh, but if you just and i'm usually the one to say no pick the smaller movie like nine times out of ten when we're talking about the film for the year that's going to go down in the annals of our history as the great film to hold up from that year but good lord the influence of star wars is immeasurable and obviously you could have known that in 1977 moving into the oscars uh, that were held in 1978 but come on Come on. Come on. Hindsight is come on! 2020. Come on. 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 Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much for that social media feedback. Dalton, do you know anything else about social media feedback by which conversations could be held? Dustin, last night we said a great many things. You said I was going to do thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it, and since then it all adds up to one thing. You're getting in that car with Arthur, where you belong. Now, you got to listen to me. You have any idea what you have to look forward to if you stay here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up on MySpace. Isn't that true, Louie? Most certainly. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Arthur. You're part of his work. The thing that keeps him going. If that car leaves and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon, and for the rest of your life. Dustin, we'll always have Twitter. Thank you very much for that. Is there any feedback coming in from the Twitsy Twitter? Oh, man, a whole lot of it. Uh, not any actual, uh, hey, I have a question, or hey, blah blah But we have a bunch of new followers and a bunch of retweets, and I assume most of that is related to Dustin's uh, shameless whoring that he did at the uh, Southwest PCA conference. Uh, we've got new followers in the uh, way of at Cody Y letter zero, uh, who is at C. I'm sorry, Cody, have a more legible Twitter handle. You don't get read. Uh, we also have, uh, nope, not going to read yours either, pal. Some guy that does gaming. Uh, and then Rebecca Lynn, who is at Lynn Cinnamon. Thank you, Rebecca, for having a legible Twitter handle. 
who is a uh, writer uh, of some sort. So thank you so much, Rebecca. We also got new followers in the way of Sequart. Uh, I'm sorry, no, they just retweeted us. Sequart uh, publishes um, some really cool articles online. Uh, you can check out our bonus episode that Dustin did when he was at the uh, Southwest PCA. He did an interview um, with Ian Daw, mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Daw, Mr. Daw, uh, which was really great. He also did the Reverend Doctor Daw. I think the Reverend Doctor Daw. He prefers to be called. He, One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. It will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure. He also did an interview with uh, Elizabeth Collins, who uh, tweeted at us last week, or uh, started following us last week, I should say. We are also now being followed by the Southwest PCA, and they retweeted that bonus interview episode that Dustin did, which I really recommend you check out. I listened to it last night and really enjoyed it. And just again, to plug Ian's book, it's coming out April 15th. It's already available for pre-order on Amazon.com. You can look at the interview episode and the show notes, and there's a link there for you to find that book. Buy it, buy it, buy it. As a result of my shameless whoring on Twitter, we're also now being followed by Loot Crate. Loot Crate, where for just the low, low price of $13.37, you too can get a whole bundle of swag once a month uh, about all of your nerdy-related things. That's not an ad. That's just how it works. But Loot Crate, that's the sort of wonderful advertising you could be looking forward to um, because we are for sale. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Again, we're so happy about the feedback. We've really blown up this month in listens, and we're so glad to see so many of you uh, following what we're doing here at the podcast and listening to our yammerings and the things that we have to say. Of course, you can give feedback at those locations at which you listen, uh, either at iTunes. You can write a review there. You can listen uh, directly at the Podbean site and leave comments there. Stitcher Internet Radio, it's also available. And so we love, love, love to keep the conversation going. We are noticing there are lots of you listening listening in the UK lately and we don't actually know who you are we have no idea how this happened we don't even know how you found us and so um, this is a uh, specific plea uh, to UK listeners right now for the Good Trash Honor cast. How'd you find the show? Why are you listening? What do you like about what we're doing? Again, just we just want to know a little bit about who you are, and we're just very, very thankful uh, for your presence uh, in our conversation. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so glad. It's for you that we do all of these things. So we're glad, glad um, that that's going on. But let's move on because, guys, the hour's getting late, and I think it's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. This week's game are, um, since we are looking at a Best Picture winner with Casablanca. On the night of the Oscars. On the night of the Oscars. We're going to talk about movies that should have won an Oscar or performances that should have won an Oscar. We're all going to pick three and kind of go around, I think is the plan. That's right. Movies that should have won an Oscar. Brought to you by Casablanca. Casablanca. You're damn right we deserve that Best Picture win. There you go. Dig. <laughs> and fair. so we just want to hear those picks. I believe the orders were going to go one and one and one, and then two and two and two, and three and three and three, and we're going to pick whatever category from which our selection goes. Is that correct? 
Yes. Some of us are just doing best picture. Some of us are doing actor nods, maybe director nods. I don't know. So um, interested, interested to hear uh, those picks. I begin with you, Dalton Stewart. What say you? Well, I'm going to start off with one of the ones that I think is the most egregious, uh, and that is the Oscars that were held in 1990 honoring films made in 1989. A little film called Driving Miss Daisy won that year about Morgan Freeman's quest to unracist an old racist white lady. Meanwhile, that same year, a wonderful film was made by Spike Lee, probably his best film still to this day, called Do the Right Thing, uh, which is about, you know, racism in general and how that can impact uh, a neighborhood in New York. And, man, that's a great movie. Uh, and I've seen enough of Driving Miss Daisy that I don't have any interest in watching the whole film ever. And I've seen Do the Right Thing two or three times, and I'd like to watch it again right this very second because it's that damn good. Excellent. Thank you very much for that pick. Miss Alexander Bohannon, uh, what's your first pick? I would say that, let's see, it was 2010. Uh, the 2010 Oscars, I'm going to go a little unconventional. I'm going to talk about score. Um, I would say that... Um, Inception should have won the best film score over uh, Trent Reznor's um, soundtrack for The Social Network. I think that's a close pick, but I like that. I think uh, you're incorrect, but that's okay. Well, here's why. Because it also just depends on your perspective about the Oscars, too. Mm -hmm. Because to me, watching the Oscars that year, I felt like the whole Trent Reznor thing was one of those, hey, we're giving you an Oscar because we've like dodged you for so long, and uh, your work was good, obviously, but this was more out of motivation for like the Academy trying to like make everyone feel good. Like I felt Hans Zimmer deserved that Inception score win because that to me now looking back has more of an impact on, I think on our cultural um, consciousness and it's a good score. I don't think you can say it was, Oh, well it's Trent Reznor's turn because it was only like the second or third. Yeah. It might just be the second or th maybe third film score he had maybe. done with Atticus Ross. Um, I think it was them saying, here's here's a pity award, Social Network, because we decided to give Best Picture to the stuffy British drama instead of the film that's actually really a commentary on our times. But yeah, I, that Hans Zimmer score, I mean, literally every, tra every trailer for an action or blockbuster picture released since then, uh, and that trend is just now ending, uh, apes that Inception score in some capacity. So I think that's that might be fair, actually, Alex. Yeah. Excellent pick. Thank you very much. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your first pick? I am going to go back to the early 90s and say uh, there was a three-hour film that won a Best Picture uh, by the name of Dances with Wolves, uh, which oddly enough beat out the more deserving, the more memorable, the more culturally relevant uh, Marty Scorsese's uh, Goodfellas, which should have taken home, I think, a Best Picture that year. because Could, it Couldn't is, even get a damn plate of spaghetti. Though I love Dances with Wolves. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I think... And again, it's that hindsight thing. Uh, I don't know. We could predict what's going to go on to become the more culturally relevant film, but Goodfellas has certainly uh, shown to be the better movie, I think, over the years. So I'm going to take the obvious pick for my first one. I'm going to go back to 1941. A little film called Citizen Kane came out and did not win Best Picture. It lost to a film called How Green Was My Valley. Have you heard of this movie? 
No one else has either. But you've heard of Citizen Kane. You it, ask people, they'll tell you Citizen Kane won Best Picture. They will. They, 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 I th- thought it did until this moment. It, it, <laughs> it did not. It was not the Best Picture of uh, 1941. And It I, was How Green Is My Valley or How Green Is Your Valley. Uh, who, Whose valley's green? I, I'm feeling like this Valley's is getting green. sexual all of a sudden. <laughs> it's like extremely close and incredibly loud. Yeah. Ex- oh, Whose oh, title? Adjectives. Ho, ho, ho. Green Valley. We don't care. Yeah. And it, Is that about the Jolly Green Giant? It, it, yes. I, it, it'd be a better movie automatically, <laughs> having never even seen it. It was a it. Disney animated film. So I'm, 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 my panties are in a bunch uh, about this particular <laughs> issue. And so, um, yes, that's, that's my first pick for that. Let's go back around once again. Mr. Dalton Stewart, number two pick for you. So in 1995, um, Forrest Gump by Robert Zemeckis starring um, – the wonderful Tom Hanks uh, was awarded the best picture for 1994. You know what else came out in 1994? Shawshank Redemption. Pulp Fiction. Everything. Both of those. And also what Alex said. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, Pulp Fiction should have won. Um, not to say, I mean, I like Forrest Gump a lot. I am a defender of that film. It gets a lot of flack for being really kitschy and um, saccharine. Um, and I like Shawshank Redemption because it's the ultimate dude cry movie um, and is also very, very good. But Pulp Fiction is not only just very, very good, but it's commentary on film, which the Academy normally loves. Uh, but it's also exposing wider audiences to a different type of uh, filmmaking um, I mean, you got to remember, Pulp Fiction was a huge hit. It was an independent film that made a lot of money, really connected with audiences, still to this day has a huge cult following, but even ignoring its larger cultural impact um, and ignoring the fact that it helped launch the career of Quentin Tarantino, it's just a great movie. And again, it's, you know, it's stylistic choices, it's, it's experimental takes, which really aren't that experimental, really. It's just kind of adapting... Uh, things art films have been doing for a very long time into kind of a schlocky gangster type setting. So yeah, it's kind of egregious that it lost that year because, I, come on, everyone knows that Pulp Fiction is a better movie than than Forrest Gump, which is a fine film, but we all know it's the better film. Come on, agreed, totally agreed. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What's your next pick? Um, I would also. I, okay, I think I'm trying to boil this down, and it's really hard to choose. But I'm just gonna say. Pretty much every best... No, that one deserved it. I'd say that most of the best animated film Oscars of the 2000s, the 2000... Uh, the 2010s teens have been kind of just default given to Disney Pixar or Pixar or whatever happened after the films go. I always think of them getting the, the Frozen Oscar last year as opposed to the Wind... The Wind Rises, and then in 2010, I also thought it was weird that they got... I just looked at it. They, I felt like... Um, oh, Toy Story 3 got the Oscar, whereas I thought it should have gone to How to Train Your Dragon because I felt like that was such a great film from not the Disney Pixar machine that it really deserved that Oscar. And I think you can just go back through, and, through the list uh, of those Oscars, and I feel like a lot of them have been neglecting you know independent studio i know how to train your dragon isn't independent but smaller studios foreign uh animated films and it's just been giving it out to a default of the big you know movie churning animated feature machine that is disney slash pixar i don't agree with the thing well we're just going to keep on giving it to them despite 
you know, all of these great films coming from alternate roots or alternate studios. Well, I'll agree with you on Up. I mean, I think Up is, is, is a great movie, and it's, it's wonderful to see, but it goes up against, I think, greater achievements in animation. Oh, yeah, Coraline, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Fantastic yeah. Mr. Fox, and also um, Secret of Kells. Um, all of which I think are better achievements in terms of animation. Yeah. Up. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you on your second pick? I would have said that in 2009, uh, recognizing the 2008 year, I believe, Mickey Rourke made a career comeback and did a very fine piece of work oh, in man. The Wrestler. Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Such it's a, a good movie. Beautiful performance and they tackle a subject matter that is near and dear to my heart. And Mickey Rourke, wonderful, wonderful performance, and even hit the the actual winner, Sean Penn, who won Best Actor at the Oscars, acknowledged that that Mickey should have been up there and should have won the award. Basically, the look on his face said, "Really?" Yeah, and so for them to deny that career comeback, and maybe somebody's just got it out for Rourke, like they maybe on the list that DiCaprio's on. Oh, Rourke's on that list, I think. DiCaprio yeah. nailed somebody's granddaughter for real. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm going to take us to the 50s now, and I'm going to talk about 1958, which is, a, in, in good trash terms, a great year for genre film, uh, two films that were not even nominated, and then I'm going to talk about the film that should have won. Uh, this is the year Horror of Dracula from Terrence Fisher comes out with the immaculate Christopher Lee as Dracula, and not mentioned in any way. I think it's definitely an achievement in genre film, and also Forbidden Planet. Hello, Forbidden Planet. Uh, just a great, great film uh, from 58. And again, no mentions, no honor, because again, the Academy was not um, honoring the schlocky genre stuff, which is just too bad. But 1958 also has a distinction of having the greatest picture of all time, according to the Sight and Sounds Top 250 poll, which is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh. Which was in the running, for the fairness, uh, but did not win, and it lost to a film called Gigi. What's Gigi about, Dustin? Who cares? That's the point. Who's seen Gigi? Who wants to just really defend Gigi up against Vertigo? That's my point. And Gigi was popular, and it was sort of uh, recognized in the blockbuster, or not, it was pre-blockbuster, but in terms of box office receipts, it definitely had more recognition than Vertigo, which was something of a financial flop. Um, initially, mm -hmm. but um, by far the more important film is Vertigo, and again, Academy, you missed it. Let's move right on to our last picks. Dalton, what's your third pick? Well, in the Oscars, uh, awarding, so obviously uh, I'm going to talk about the 70s and not going to talk about Annie Hall and Star Wars. Instead, we're going to go to the Oscars that occurred the year those films come out, honoring the films in 1976. Two films came out about a young Italian-American man and um, his struggles with the American dream. One of them is very, very good. One of them is about boxing and is okay. The other one is about a sociopath who's going to assassinate a political figure to impress a girl he likes, but then saves a young prostitute. And that's Taxi Driver. Um, because it was directed by Martin Scorsese, and 3-6 Mafia got an Oscar before he did. You know it's hard out here for a pill yeah, you know. When you're trying to get um, if you've seen Taxi Driver and you've seen Rocky, and I have seen both of those films from start to finish, uh, both of them multiple times, you know Taxi Driver is better. You can just smell that it's better. You don't even have, you can close your eyes and listen to it, and you know that Taxi Driver is better. 
they're both good films. Um, I, I like Rocky quite a bit. But Taxi Driver is a great film that is saying something about urban decay in the United States in 1977. Uh, or 1976, rather. Rocky's uh, about a knucklehead in Philadelphia who uh, would like to punch people in the face instead of slabs of meat at the uh, meatpacking plant he works at. Go watch Taxi Driver right now. Do yourself a favor if you haven't. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexander Bohannon, your final pick. I'm going to field trip to 1998. So um, these are films. Grr. Yeah. Um, so these are going to be films that were produced in uh, the 1997 season. Um, the best picture that year was not Saving Private Ryan. It was not The Thin Red Line. It was not The Big Lebowski, The Truman Show, or Out of Sight. It was Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> Isn't that a fun fact? How did for I you? forget that? Yeah, it's How? a travesty. That movie. Yeah. How did I forget? I should have. I know that. Like now, my brain remembers. Oh yeah, because nobody thought that would win. Now I remember. That is some fucking horseshit. To get a little <laughs> explicit, I'm sorry. Have you seen Saving Private Ryan? Have you seen The Big Lebowski? I don't even like Out of Sight that much, but I'll tell you right now, it's better than Shakespeare in Love, which I have seen. The Big Lebowski wasn't even nominated. <laughs> Sorry, it's so sad. It's funny. At the there same is time. no justice. Saving Private Ryan's a World War II movie. They I know, love they World love War II those, movies, right? They love yeah. them. Oh, Saving Private Ryan's real good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. You know what it's better than Shakespeare? Shakespeare, Shakespeare love. love. You're damn right. <laughs> just, just like uh, Whiplash is better than uh, Hawking in Love, as yeah. I have taken to calling it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Shakespeare in Love winning is if is akin to if any of the Harry Potter movies won best best picture to me like the implausibility of that because Harry Potter movies were real good and I liked Shakespeare in Love good enough but w- wow is all I can manage there yeah just wow just wow absolutely thank you very much miss bohannon uh, mr arthur gordon what's your final pick well in uh 2012 honoring 2011's film achievements a french film French silent film, a French black and white silent film mm-hmm. uh, by the title of The Artist, or in French, Les Artistes, <laughs> uh, took home several Oscar wins, including Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Picture, uh, as well as a few others, I do believe, uh, splitting five and five with Hugo, which won a bunch of technical stuff and probably should have won some <laughs> actual awards. However, however, there's another film that should have won that year. It should have swept the Oscars that year, and that movie is Drive, yeah, starring The Gauze. Drive should have won a should have been nominated. Sh- yeah, Drive had one nomination. That one nomination came for sound editing. <laughs> Drive should have taken oh home God. an award for sound editing, sound mixing, cinematography, uh, art direction. Uh, let's see, score. I think that score is pretty mm-hmm. solid from Cliff Martinez. I think it should have taken home a best supporting actor award for Albert Brooks. I think it should have won best director. Uh, for Nicholas Winding Refn, and I think it should have took home the Best Picture Award. What else was nominated uh, that year, Arthur? Let's see. Uh, Hugo. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty solid behind Scorsese. Yeah, you know, I'm in. Uh, I, you know, um, let's see. Because there's one in particular. It's and not this Drive. Is, this there's is one the that year. was actually nominated that I felt very strongly about yeah, that yeah. year. And this is a year that we go to the the split. We have the or ten nine ten awards. Yeah, that was that was post two thousand eight. So, so it's the, there was plenty of room to nominate Drive. drive. Let's, yeah, you know, let's not be around the bush. The Descendants. Mm-hmm. The Artist. Mm-hmm. 
extremely loud and incredibly, extremely loud and incredibly close, got a nomination over Drive. Yeah, this is my voice, extremely loud and incredibly close to the microphone. The help. (laughs) Wait, what? Hugo. Mm-hmm. Hugo, Midnight in Paris, mm-hmm. Moneyball, mm-hmm. The Tree of Life, mm-hmm. and War Horse. War Horse. That's what got nominated in 2011. A.K.A. Horse. They couldn't War have Horse. squeezed in Drive, Drive just to just just to nominate it, so you can put it on the DVD. I don't jackets. know who pissed in whose cereal that year, but there was a major travesty. I don't even. Li- I don't. I'm not. I don't even care for Tree of Life that strongly, and even I'm like, that's what should have won. Obviously. Yeah. Good yeah. lord. Yeah. Ugh. So. Ugh. Man. There. Yeah. Nothing sums up the Oscars better than Alex's pick of Shakespeare in Love winning yeah. the Best Picture Award. <laughs> That's something. That sums up the Oscars for about the last 30 years. Well, and I'm going to go ahead and move on to my last pick. And I, I'm clearly an apologist for one Alfred Joseph Hitchcock, who has never won an Academy Award. He ends up getting a throwback award in the eight in, in like right at 80 like the year here's he your dies honorary award and yeah here's your honorary award because we obviously screwed you um <laughs> and so again let's go to 1960 a little film came out called psycho which is worthy of best director best picture uh nominations it's a big deal editing editing let's, let's talk editing editing i'm my gosh editing that shower scene is a masterpiece yeah it's a, a class in editing it, it's an absolute masterpiece that film lost best picture to um jack levin's great performance in the apartment but again dear listener let's just ask the question in terms of good trash and cultural re- relevance who's seen the apartment and who's seen psycho shall we take a vote true and, and so yeah I, I i think this is the greatest catastrophe of the academy awards right there and again just the the you know, slap on the back, backhanded compliment of uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award is, um, I, frankly, a slap in the face and um, very, very disturbed. Did he get that posthumously or, like, was he No, he was alive. At least. Barely. Ish. I mean, he died that year. Did they, like, year. wheel him out, kind of? Oh, he, I, I've seen the video of it. He looks very, very bad. Um, I mean, he is at the end. And, of course, he um, wants to um, also give credit to a uh, an important screenwriter, an important uh, co um uh, art director and co-editor, and they're all the same person, his wife, Alma Ravel, and it's a beautifully sweet moment uh, there uh, for that. And so, yeah, I mean, I love me some Hitchcock. I mean, I have a wheelhouse, and uh, that is, uh, again, I think it's not not even a tragedy. It is a catastrophe. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, thank you so much to your co-host. I believe that's the most epic gameplay we've had in some time, Yeah, definitely. ever. And so that's excellent. But let's move on and conclude this show with what we always conclude it with, which is that which has got us fired up this week in pop culture. Miss Bohannon, are you fired up this week? I'm mildly fired up. I'd say probably like a five on the fired up scale um i finally got around to a I'm, scale to 100 or a scale to uh, 10 like i i'm looking i'm my brain says it's a scale of one to ten and not so so like about halfway um i i'm still behind on better call Saul. like i still haven't watched those episodes and i am bereft and so really sad that i haven't gotten a chance to watch those yet i know you have right yes yes i have I yeah you being I've, dalton I, I've yeah. seen the first two uh, of the three that have aired so far, and I'm really impressed with it so far. Yeah. I now feel under obligation to catch up as well. Yeah. It, it is uh, does a really good job of capturing 
Uh, I, I was really concerned about the quality of Better Call Saul, as I think we should all be with spinoffs, but really impressed with it. It takes those same visual cues from Breaking Bad and a lot of the same storytelling style while clearly telling a story that is very much its own, which I like. Yeah, and Saul was my favorite character in uh, Breaking Bad, so I'm very excited to catch up on that, uh, certainly. Um, So that, and then I finally watched two episodes of Downton Abbey, and it is, um, I mean, it is a a most wonderfully produced soap opera, but I still enjoy it nonetheless. Um, It's gotten pretty saucy i mean what well, makes sense you like wrestling yeah i mean this is just like the super lady version of the soap opera and then wrestling is the super manly ver- version of the the soap opera if we're gonna buy into traditional tr- gender roles for a second there so there you go well thank you very much miss bohannon mr dalton stewart are you fired up this week uh, I- i'm fired up in you know we, we call the segment fired up uh, so that you can say things not just that you're excited about but just things that you're thinking about in pop culture um, earlier this week, uh, probably be about a week and a half by the time you hear this listener, um, Harris Whittles, who is a, a writer and producer on Parks and Rec. Uh, he was also uh, a writer on the Sarah Silverman program and um, was a recurring guest on Comedy Bang Bang. Um, and, and a good comic uh, died uh, of what is an apparent drug overdose at this mm-hmm. point. Um, Harris Whittles, uh, about two or three months ago, November or so, had an episode uh, on Pete Holmes' podcast, You Made It Weird, where he talked about his struggles with drug addiction. And um, he had just recently finished a second stint in rehab when he did that episode. Uh, and it's a really great episode of You Made It Weird. And at the end of it, you're really thinking, man, this this guy's this guy's going to make it. You know, he's, he's doing okay. Um, and, you know, just uh, about a week ago as we're recording on um, – oh, no, I hasn't even – sorry <clears> – <throat> Just a few days ago now, um, on the 19th, which would have been Thursday, we're recording t- t- on Sunday today, uh, he, he was found in his apartment in Los Angeles of, you know, with uh, various uh, drug paraphernalia. Um, so the toxicology reports have not come back yet, but it does definitely appear to be a heroin overdose at this point. Um, and that's, that's a real shame. Cause, um, and, and there are some really touching tributes to him, both, you know, just him as a person, but also his, his voice as a comedian. Um, Chelsea Peretti, uh, really great stand-up comedian, who is also a writer on Parks and Rec, uh, posted a bunch, retweeted a bunch of very old tweets of his, shared some screen grabs of uh, email conversations they had had that were really funny. And just uh, Aziz Ansari, uh, who you know as Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec, uh, recently wrote a really touching tribute to him. Um, and it's a real shame because he was a hell of a guy. Um, you would probably recognize him as one of the the drugged-out drug control guy or uh, not drug control, uh, uh, animal control guys from Parks and Rec. Uh, where they go to the animal control. He's one of those, too. And, um, but you know his voice. Um, I mean, he's just written some of the greatest episodes of Parks and Rec. I mean, he, he was a real voice in comedy, uh, and it's a damn shame. If you'd like to know more about Harris Whittles, you, you should uh, seek out that episode of You Made It Weird. Uh, he did two of them. He did one fairly early in the show's run and then one just a few months ago um, talking about his struggles with drug addiction. And uh, it's a real shame that we lost him. And uh, just, you know, we lost a lot of great um, entertainers uh, and writers over the last couple of years. Um, and this is not the first great voice we've lost to drug addiction, not by a long shot. Um, so, you know, get help if you need it, guys. You know, getting clean is no easy feat, but it's definitely the way to go. So, um, man, I, yeah, I, it just really bummed me out when I heard that uh, because you listen to that episode of You Made It Weird and you think, Wow, this is, this is this guy's been through a heck of a struggle, and it's really great that he's taking the steps that he needs to take. But you know, I, I guess the, what the takeaway from this is just because somebody um, 
is taking those steps to get better does not necessarily mean uh, they're out of the woods and they can always use your help and your support. Well, thank you for that, um, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Yeah, it is definitely a bummer, and I am I am so sick of that rock and roll slash Hollywood story. And uh, you know, it is something that is, makes us all very very sad to hear. But thank you for that, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I hope you can bring up the mood a little bit here with what's got you fired up this week in pop culture. I think I can pick it up a little bit. The first little thing I want to mention is there's a lot of uh, rumors going around and uh, speak happening of uh, the Indiana Jones uh, franchise continuing under the direction of Steven Spielberg. And at the helm, under the fedora, none other than Chris Pratt. That's good news. And I think I would just really dig on that if Guardians is any indication. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that he could bring some really interesting stuff to the role. Maybe we'd be able to see kind of like what we were talking earlier about Casablanca, the the masculine with that sensitivity to it maybe a little more because Harrison Ford plays basically the same character in both star wars and indie just mercenary asshole um so Mm, yeah he does yeah (laughs) which works well but Mm. it would be nice to see how pratt could treat the role in this day and age i could dig that totally uh a couple of other things uh this past weekend and well the previous weekend as well the last two weekends i have been at amc theaters here in oklahoma city catching up on the eight best picture nominees i've actually hadn't had to see I had not seen any of them prior to this except for American Sniper. Eh. Um <laughs> and so I finally got to catch up on those eight nominees and get those get my I got my horse in the race now uh for tonight's show. Um Well Arthur, what will win, what should win, and what is the thing you know doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell that you'd like to see win anyway? Uh Whiplash I would love to see win because it is it's powerful. It's Great film. I'm uh, so glad you finally got it. You texted me and, yeah. and then said, you're right. It sticks with you. Yeah, it's, it's good. I honestly, I I don't know why. I know Dalton isn't big on it, but for me, Birdman resonated. Mm. It, it's and, it's the only front runner other than Boyhood at this point. And um, if the Guild Awards are any nom- indication, it might win. Um, yeah. And I that would really piss me off because uh, it's not as good as Boyhood yeah. um, by a long shot. Um, it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad, I mean, I like it and yeah. I definitely yeah. I think you like it more than I do. And of the eight films, it's the one that stuck with me the most. Really? Boyhood I thought was beautiful and it, it moved me. Mm-hmm. It really did. And I thought, I thought Boyhood was beautiful, but for some reason of the eight, Birdman is the one I want to go back to revisit. It's the one that's just stuck with me more than any of them. I don't know that's why. Fair. And so for me, it, it's the one I think should win. And I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it honestly is a coin toss. It's between Boyhood and Birdman. Mm-hmm. And I that's think either one I've of heard them will, too. will leave with that award. And so, and either one wins, I'm not going to be disappointed. Uh, at at that cost. And the other thing that's got me fired up, uh, kind of going along with that, I finally made it out. There was one movie that came out during award season that I wanted to see more than any other, and I finally got my chance to see it this past weekend, and that's Foxcatcher, mm-hmm. Bennett Miller's Foxcatcher, um, which chronicles the true story of Mark and Dave Schultz and John DuPont and the tragedy that happened with the Foxcatcher wrestling team. Did you know the Schultz brothers wrestled at the University of Oklahoma? Yes, I actually. I did not. Yeah, and so it kind of puts it close to home for us, uh, but... Uh, this is a movie that has a Best Direction nomination. It's got two acting nominations. It has a couple of other, I believe, uh, but it doesn't have a. Sorry, it doesn't have a Best Picture nomination, which always throws me for a loop. It's always strange when they when make a movie, the splits. Yeah, and Selma, I enjoy Selma, and this isn't a knock on Selma, but it's a knock on the Academy's voting more than anything. Is that Selma has a Best Picture nomination? I think the only other nomination it got was writing and 
music. Yeah, that's great. Common got a nomination for best original song, and I think it does have a screenplay, a screenplay nomination. nomination. Uh, you know, Selma is. You know, there are two things I took away from Selma. One, mm-hmm. I love that it humanizes Martin Luther King. Yes, yeah. and it shows his flaws, and that is something American Sniper could have definitely learned from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I take that away from Selma. The other thing I take away from Selma is that I want to see Ava DuVernay. Is that correct? Is that her name? I think it's DuVernay. I yeah, but- Ava. I'm just gonna call it Ava. Uh, yeah, you guys are on first first name basis. Yeah, anyway. you know, obviously we we hang out, we have lunch next week. Uh, <laughs> I want to see Ava because there's the Birmingham the church bombing at the beginning of the film. Oh my, which is brutal and it is devastating. The way and they choose to depict that is, oh my yeah, god, that scene, the way it's shot and the way it's done, comp- <sighs> the composition there is, is is beautiful. And then the scene, uh, the 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 tear gas, the gas scene on the bridge, yeah, uh, with the the police coming out on the horses beating people. I want to see. A 28 Days Later action film type movie directed by Ava DuVernay. I mean, because she has an eye for action and that mm-hmm. type of yeah, uh, and, and but not uh, action in uh, an exciting way, action in a horrifying way. So yeah, yeah it would be interesting correct. to see her do something like 28 Days Later. What with Danny, what Danny Boyle did with that film, where yeah. all the action is very harrowing. Yeah, she but, certainly does not romanticize her violence. Yeah. No, but she does have an eye for shooting. Yeah. It, that's for sure. Say, I mean, say what you will about her direction here. If she was deserved, if she was snubbed, what have you? She's talented, and she she has a lot of potential for future. Yeah, it's a hell of a movie. She's she's she is good. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll say that. So yeah, there we go. You got to re- so you're going to revise your uh, top uh, films of 2014. Now I take it. I have that's on Letterboxd. You can check that out. I've revised that top ten. I definitely um, will. I can't remember what I put in there. I know in some order: Birdman, Boyhood, Guardians, Whiplash, and I don't remember the others are in my top five. I'll I'll check it out. So. I'll begin with uh, an a possible emendation to my top five as well. Um, I finally got to see Frank mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Michael Fassbender. Um, um, with his beautiful face covered. His beautiful face is covered most of the film. <gasps> but He not, shows his beautiful face? Yeah. You do see it towards the end, and it's not beautiful. And oh. there's something there. And it, it it really is this wonderfully weird, quirky thing. Was what I think what's most fantastic <clears throat> about it is are these moments when um, Donald Gleason doesn't know how to react to it because he can't see his facial expressions, and so he starts narrating his facial expressions. Yeah. And he says, "This is my um, bashful half smile. This is my welcoming smile." That's funny. <laughs> and it's so I gotta check this movie funny. out. I've been and meaning to see it for a while. So I really, really like it. I don't know what I would bump for it, but it's good. It's real good. So it's definitely in that honorable mention uh, matrix of, of my top films of of last year. I also want to mention um, a best animated feature nomination. Um, not the you know a Lego Movie again. That snub just makes me crazy. But um, I finally got to see Song of the Sea at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art, uh, which is b- brought to you by the same folks who brought you Secret of Kells. And it's a better story than Kells. It may not be quite as pretty, but it is gorgeous. And that's just because Secret of Kells is beautiful, beautiful filmmaking. And it was moving. Um, my entire row were weeping like small children. Um, some of my row included small children, so it sort of made sense only halfway because there were adults and teenagers also weeping. Um, and it is a fantastic film, and I could not more highly recommend that. But thank you so much for all that fired up up at Ness, dear co-host, dear listener. We'd love to hear 
hear what you're fired up about. And uh, we just would love for you to continue to keep hearing and listening to what we're doing. Now, next month, we're going to begin a new marathon, and it is our Listener Appreciation Marathon. We appreciate you so much, dear listeners. And so we're taking your recommends seriously. We're, um, we're going to stop saying, yeah, we'll get around to that and finally get around to it because you guys have been so great to us this last month. What we're saying is thank you for playing it again, Sam. And uh, we really, really appreciate um, your listens and whatnot. And we're going to begin with our very first recommend ever, which happened on our very first episode ever. That's right, Caleb. We're going to look at uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Well, dear listener, take a look at a movie. Take a look at the trash films that we talk about. Take a look at some of the high art films because it's really about the conversation. Uh, do that, and uh, we and just are so glad to have this conversation with you all. We're looking forward to your feedback, and we'll see you next time. Here's looking at you, kid. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of Hearts full of passion, jealousy and hate Woman needs man, and man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory a case of do or die The world will always welcome lovers I tell you what, I really want to see that beautiful friendship in Casablanca 2, Casa Harder. Um, I also want to see the prequel in which uh, Rick is uh, fighting uh, t- uh, Spanish fascists. There's so much more of Rick's story that I want to see because it seems fraught with uh, espionage and intrigue. It's starring Liam Neeson? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Sons of Anarchy Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> the story in which um, you know Rick finally does um, hook up with Yvonne and it's Casablanca 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, it would be fun times, I think, before us all. Well, Fifty th- Shades of Rick. <laughs> oh, no. Ew. Uh, is that the time in France? Uh, like- <laughs> oh, my God. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much, dear co-host. Oh, the safe word is transit papers. <laughs> Rick! You must help me, Rick! <laughs> 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 Woo!